let the kids get settled. And... All right, so it was sometime in mid-1991, and I was somewhere in Kuwait. I think most of y'all know me. I, I was an uh, Army officer, uh, armored cavalry, scout reconnaissance in Operation Desert Storm. All right? So I was somewhere in Kuwait, mid-1991 or so, just after Operation Desert Storm. The ground war was over, and we were now transitioning from combat operations to peacekeeping and basically refugee operations, okay? We were now closer to civilization than we were ever before. I mean, you know, we lived out in the desert in the sand for months and months and months. Um, but we were kind of closer to civilization, and a few, myself and a few of my cavalry troopers, we were going to go into this little, little town and uh, visit this store, this Arabic uh, store marketplace, okay? And I got to tell you, after living in a Bradley for almost a year, eating nothing but MREs, morning, noon, and night, you know, this was a treat. <laughs> I mean, this was a treat. Man, we're going to civilization, right? Um, so I'm walking around this little Arab store, this little Arab marketplace, looking at stuff on the shelves, and I got the feeling somebody was watching me. You know how you get that feeling? You're like, somebody's like looking at you. So I'm looking at this, and uh, I just get this feeling somebody's watching me. And I turned around, and I made eye contact with a woman, a young woman, a Muslim young woman. It was completely unexpected because we both made eye contact, right? And all I could see, though, dim, dimly, were her eyes because from head to toe, she was covered in that black, traditional Muslim garb that Muslim women wear. She was startled, right? After a few seconds, she regained her composure, she lowered her eyes, and she refused to look at me. Now, in Islamic countries, it is forbidden for a woman to even look at a man. Okay? It's, I mean, I could not help but think, you know, here I am, I'm some 25-year-old kid, an American. She probably hadn't even ever seen an American before. You know, what was she thinking? I mean, how did she feel, right? I was shocked because the number, I mean, I had never seen anything like this before. The number of thoughts and feelings kind of running through my head, right? This was the first time I'd seen a Muslim woman in this full, dark, traditional Islamic dress with nothing but a little mesh screen up here for her eyes, right? I mean, when I locked eyes with her, I noticed she was very young. She's probably a teenager, you know. Um, but she was covered from head to toe in black, right, in darkness. I mean, she literally was enslaved in darkness, right, chained to a religion that treated women as subhuman. All right, underneath, she was probably attractive. I mean, I was looking at her eyes, right? But she was held captive by dark forces that prohibited her from being anything but a slave to an evil system that offered her no chance of escape. What was I thinking? I mean, look, I just fought a war to liberate this country from Iraqi invasion and oppression. And yet, here I was, standing in front of another form of oppression that, quite frankly, I may have just contributed to. I mean, I wanted to rip the black garment off of her and say, she was free, you're free. Blood was spilled, lives were sacrificed. She was free to be a human being. 
made in the image of God with value and worth. But I was powerless. I was powerless to do anything. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, is not powerless. Jesus came to set the captives free. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at another encounter with a woman, starting out in John chapter 4, a woman of Samaria. We will see Jesus with the power of the cross. You know, he's going to break religious and international boundaries. He's going to smash down barriers that have long stood upright between cultures. Okay? How Jesus pursues sinners and shows them a better way. Out of sin. Out of captivity. Out of darkness. Right? A way out of slavery to sin and in the marvelous light of the freedom and life in Jesus Christ. True life, right, in which Jesus Christ, the God-man, in which his own blood was spilled, his own life was sacrificed, this woman could be saved through faith in this man, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's read. If you don't have, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up the Bible. We're going to go to John chapter 4. Um, open up your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible... There is one underneath the seat in front of you. I will say this. I think only young folks can read the Bible in the seat in front of you because it's microprint. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you can open up your Bible app. Uh, John chapter 4. So let's read this and we'll jump right in. All right. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I, I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, We've been going through the book of John, right? And we've, we're just now starting chapter 4. And I think as we look at chapter 4 over the next week or two, couple weeks, I think so many times this section of John is presented about evangelism, right? It's about evangelism. After all, Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about the gospel in chapter 3, Right, And this morning we're seeing Jesus speaking with this Samaritan woman at the well also about himself in what he's calling living water. 
Now, I think as we go through the book of John, we're going to be hard-pressed, I think, to find a more interesting array of characters, right? I mean, we have, who have we already seen, right? We've seen John the Baptist. Nobody can deny that guy is interesting, okay? I mean, he's a little crazy out there. Nicodemus, on the other hand, is very proper, Pharisee, educated, right, ruler. The Samaritan woman at the well, completely different than everybody else. Mary, the mother of Jesus in chapter 2, right? They're all so different, but they all have one thing in common, right? The need for the gospel, the need for this living water that Jesus is talking about. John shows us that this good news is for everyone. Jesus came not to save a certain class of people, not a certain, you know, political party, okay, not a certain color or nationality or whatever. Jesus came to save all kinds of people, each of whom, though, must only receive him in faith, and that's it. So think about the difference, though, between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman at the well. Now, I I do apologize because sometimes I get on fire and I start preaching and all that. This lesson, I think, this sermon here, I think it's going to be a little bit more of a teaching piece because what I want to do is compare the Samaritan woman with Nicodemus. I want to talk to you about what they have different, what they have in common. And then we read a little piece here in the book about how Samaritans have no dealings with Jews and vice versa. So I need to explain a little bit so so it, it helps you understand why this meeting between Jesus and this woman is so significant, right? And I think it'll help you actually understand why the parable of the Good Samaritan also is not just some dude helping some dude off the street, right? It is. It breaks every cultural barrier that you can ever imagine, all right? So anyway, think about the difference between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well, right? One commentator, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, love him, great stuff, writes this. It is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, and this simple Samaritan woman drawing water at the well. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. That's like Arab and Israeli right there. Okay? He was a Pharisee. She didn't even belong to any religious or political party, right? He was a politician. She had no status at all. He was a scholar. She was probably uneducated. He was highly moral. Possibly she was immoral. We'll talk about that next week. Um, He had a name. This woman is nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation She who had no reputation came at high noon, the sixth hour, high noon. Nicodemus came seeking, but the woman at the well was sought by Jesus. Okay, great contrast. Yet the point of these two narratives, these two stories, is that both the man and the woman needed what Jesus had to offer. The good news of Jesus Christ where he comes to save people from their sins. If Nicodemus is an example of perhaps like the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above salvation, the woman is an example of the truth that none can sink too low either. 
So what did these two unlikely and apparently opposite characters here have in common? Let me just talk about a couple of things they had in common, okay? So one is they both thought they were all right spiritually, right? Now, there was, an, there was kind of this inner hunger, right, for sure, I think. But Nicodemus thought he was secure as, as a child of Abraham. He was not only a teacher of the law, it says he was the teacher of the law, and he was a staunch Pharisee. I mean, this guy was like prim and proper. I mean, you know, he was the, I don't know, very educated, very politically connected, very proper. I'm a child of Abraham. I know, my, I know where I'm at. He was the most religious of them all, right? The Samaritan woman, though, on the other hand, actually believed in another religion, right? A sort of like Judaism abbreviated because as I'll talk about a little bit later the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament not the Psalms not the Proverbs not the prophets all that they had this little piece and that's what they believed in and I think both were satisfied where they were religiously so okay so that's number one number two both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman reacted to the teachings of Jesus with sort of a materialistic earthly view right Both of them couldn't get beyond the comparisons Jesus was using, right? Remember Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must, must, not you, you could, not you should, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And what did Nicodemus say? Born again? How how can I get back in my mother's womb? I mean, I'm sorry, what kind of stupid question is that? (laughs) You know, how do you, but he could not see past the earthly comparison. And even what we read here, you know, Jesus said, if you knew who it was that was asking you, you would have asked me for living water. And she said, yeah, but you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. How, 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 uh, I, I don't know, right? They couldn't get past this earthly view, right? And quite frankly, I mean, think, think about it. Isn't this true of so many people today, right? You go up and start talking to people about Jesus or the gospel or the Bible. What are they going to say? Yeah, but, 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 but what about science? Or what about psychology? Or even nowadays, but what about my feelings? Okay, a lot of people who are asking these questions, I mean, these, these are good questions. Don't, don't get me wrong. Because when people ask those questions, I fully engage them. What about science? Well, let's talk about that. What about psychology? Let's talk about that, right? I love to talk to people about that kind of thing. But I think the people asking these questions, those are great questions. The people asking these questions, though, are limiting themselves to what they can absorb with only the five senses, okay? So they miss the most important parts of Christianity, and those important parts are meaningless to them, right? Christianity is supernatural. Okay, number three, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman were both empty spiritually, Right? But they did sense that they needed something else. Right? They didn't know what that was. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he wanted to know more. The Samaritan woman, I think, I think after this conversation, the Samaritan woman kind of had an inkling about who Jesus was and what was going on. We'll get to that next week. All right? I think she wanted answers. Finally, both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman were dead spiritually. They were lost. Lost spiritually. Right? They were empty. They were looking for answers. But at the same time, They couldn't really come to grips with the idea that they were dead spiritually and they needed something, someone who could make them alive, 
All right? So this morning, let's remember that, yes, this passage is about evangelism, right? The narrative of Nicodemus in chapter 3 is about a highly educated, respected Jewish Pharisee and teacher. The text in chapter 4 is about an unnamed Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. But I'm going to challenge you this morning. All right? Let me challenge you this morning. Don't see yourself as the evangelist here. Don't see yourself as Jesus, okay? See yourself as the woman. See yourself as Nicodemus. See yourself as someone like them who needs to be born again, who needs this living water, right? And even though you may be born again, friends, the gospel is something you hear once and then never hear again. If you are born again, right, you need to hear the gospel again and again and again. You need to hear this message that Christ has come to save sinners, and you are one of them. I'm one of them. We're all one of them. To remind yourself of who you once were and how Jesus has now given you new life and a new nature and loves you. Remember what he said? We love because he first loved us, right? He loves us now. Why? So that we can then love others, okay? Now, let's look at the four, first four verses and make a couple of observations here, right? That how Jesus set up this chance encounter. So these verses state that Jesus knew the Pharisees knew something, right? When Jesus found out that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was baptizing more people than John, but then it says he wasn't really baptized, but his, his disciples were. He decided to move on, right? Did he leave out of fear? No. All right, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he does not react out of fear for anything, <laughs> right? He does not react out of fear for nobody, no sir, no how, right? I think his time had not yet come. He had concluded his mission there, so... In order to not cause unnecessary trouble, he continued his mission in another location. All right? But note this. Look at, look at the wor uh, words in verse 4. It says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Can you put the map up on the screen, Tamara? All right. Oh, man, that's kind of hard to see. Um, but I wanted to show you this because, um, you know, geographically, I need a laser pointer up here. The little red line up here, that's where Jesus went. But if you look, most, most Jews would go up here over the Dead Sea, go up, and then go back across the river so they wouldn't even have to go to Samaria. They'd take the long way around so they wouldn't even have to go straight up through the red, through the red line. Okay? But they always took the long way around. Why? Because they just didn't even want to go there. I'm not going to have any dealings whatsoever with these low-life, subhuman Sumerians. So I'm taking the long way around over on the other side of where it says Jacob's well there. I'm going to go all the way around that way, go up there to Galilee. So why did Jesus take the direct approach? Bam, straight up the middle. Why did he do that? I think because he had a date with a particular Samaritan woman who was lost and was perhaps unknown to this Samaritan woman at the time longing for answers, right? 
So Jesus had to go through Samaria because his mission dictated the route that he had to take. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about Samaria. Give you some context for, you know, for all of this. And I think it'll help you understand why the Jews and Samaritans hated each other, like Arabs and Israelis today. And I think knowing this, it'll also help you, like I said, understand the parable of the good Samaritan because that just wasn't some dude finding some other dude on the side of the road and helping him. The guy on the road was Jewish. Of course, the good Samaritan was from Samaria. That's like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hezbollah, terrorist, seeing an Israeli on the side of the road and saying, I'm going to help this guy. Think about the possibility or impossibility of that situation right there. Okay? So the reason for all this hostility of the Jews, though, with the Samaritans goes a long way back. So I'm sorry. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Everybody stay awake because, you know, you got to know what's going on. you got to know the context, right? So when the Assyrians took Samaria captive, they deported a large number of the Samaritan inhabitants and replaced them with people from all over their empire. That is the way you subdue a culture, right? You conquer it. You take a bunch of people, spread them out, you bring your own people in there, bam, you rule that place now, okay? So these people brought their own gods with them, and all this is in 2 Kings chapter 17, Uh, but they also added the worship of Yahweh, of God, to their practices. So now they had Baal, they had Moloch, they had Yahweh, all right? They just mixed them all up, okay? And in time, though this worship of all these gods disappeared and they went back to worshiping the one true God alone. But their religion was a little, let's say, abbreviated, okay? They acknowledged only as sacred scripture what's called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. That's all they, that's all they, that's all they read. No Psalms, no prophets, no Proverbs, nothing, all right? And their religion was also marked by intense bitterness toward the Jews. So in Ezra chapter 4, after they were captured and sent to Babylon, they came back and they were going to rebuild the temple. So the Samaritans were going, great, awesome. You know what? We're going to offer to help them out to rebuild the temple. The Jews said, no. (laughs) We don't want your help. Stay away from us. Okay? So that made them a little mad there as well. So then, of course, you know, the Samaritans then said, okay, fine. Well, we're not going to worship in Jerusalem. We're going to build our own temple on this mountain where we'll see the the woman refers to next week. And we're going to worship there. It's called Mount Gerizim. They built this temple. We're not going to Jerusalem. We're going to build our own temple. Well, of course, the Jews didn't like that either, right? So they just like said, you know, heck with you. We're not even going to mess with you people. So... There was conflict. There was constant conflict. And then, of course, the Jews got mad. They went up there and they destroyed the Samaritan temple <laughs> just to make things worse, <laughs> right? So, so now there was just like, like I said, you know, Arabs and Israelis in the Gaza Strip constantly just fighting each other. People don't even know why anymore. They just fight, okay? That's what it was between Jews and Samaritans. In fact, it's interesting, the Jews even codified a law that said that all Samaritan women 
We're in a perpetual state of ceremonial uncleanliness. uncleanliness. As a Jewish man, I, I couldn't even talk to a Samaritan woman. I couldn't go up and ask her. I couldn't take the cup. Jesus said, give me a drink. Technically, he couldn't even take the cup from her without being unclean. I mean, it was that bad, right? So, okay, so Jesus made his way up into Samaria, right, with his disciples. You know, he said, look, you guys go into town and buy food. I'm going to hang out here at the well. So I can imagine his disciples going, what, what, why are we even going through this way? Teacher, go around. You know, teacher, go around. That's the approved path. Nope. Jesus said, we're going right through the middle. And he arrives at the well. It's the sixth hour, which is noon. Samaritan woman comes to draw, well, uh, draw water at the well. And this is a little interesting, too, because this was high noon. It was hot, okay? So this woman coming to the well at noon was a little unusual because most time they would come in groups, not by themselves. They would come in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler. But this woman came right, bam, right in the middle of the day, right? So the disciples went to buy food for merchants in Samaria, but like I said, strict Jews and Pharisees couldn't even touch the food. They couldn't even touch food that was given to them by a Samaritan. So think about this. I think, it doesn't say this, and I'm going to speculate here in just a second, but I think it appears that perhaps Jesus had taught his disciples something about the Samaritans being more than subhuman. I think Jesus had prepped his disciples on this journey up through this area that Samaritans were human beings just like they were made in the image of God, ready for salvation in the teaching that Jesus had to offer. So that's why I think they didn't have a problem going into town to buy food. So Jesus breaks protocol and asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. And again, despite the laws and the cultural hostility between Jews and Samaritans, especially women, Jesus breaks down the barriers, heads right straight into this mess. Bam, I'm going into this thing. But what this woman doesn't realize is that far from being defiled by what is unclean, remember, there's a ceremony. You couldn't even t talk to this woman. You, couldn't, you weren't even supposed to do anything with this woman. But what this woman doesn't realize is that this, these rules don't apply to Jesus Christ, okay? Why is that? Because what she doesn't realize is that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies. He actually makes that person clean, Right? Whatever he touches. Remember, um, well, we haven't got to this yet, but there's a woman that comes up. She's been bleeding for, what, 20 years? I don't remember now. Comes up, if I could just touch Jesus' garment. If I could just touch, I'd, I'd be healed. I'd be healed. Bam. Touches, healed. She was unclean, right? Lepers. How many times in the Bible have you read where Jesus goes to a leper and people are all freaking out? No, you can't even go there. Can't even do touches the leper, bam, healed and clean, Right? So Jesus touches a leper, brings healing. He restores that person's life. A religious male Jewish aristocrat like Nicodemus or the untrained person of no reputation Samaritan peasant who had made a mess out of her life potentially. Jesus talks frankly with both of them, happily breaks social barriers and taboos to do it. Why? Because the gospel transcends all cultural political, economic, social, whatever barriers, okay? So think about this for a moment. 
How easy it is is it for us to speak with others that we don't know or perhaps have nothing in common with? I mean, think about this. So Terry's shaking her head. She's done this. A lot of people have done this. But think about it. Could we go across the street over here and just talk with people off the cuff who live in these houses over here? I see some people saying yes. Yes, we can, right? What about up the street to the trailer parks? What about the local businesses? What about people in the state capitol over in Jeff? Right? We often say, though, you know, oh, I have nothing in common with these people. I mean, whoever those people are, right? I just, I just can't talk with them. I just don't know them. What do I say? Right? What do I say? I mean, I'm going to get, okay, let me just give you an example here. Right? I mean, I'm getting a PhD, and the people in the trailer park probably have no high school education. Guess what? It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Oh my goodness, well this guy, you know, he's the boss and he makes big six figures out and I'm just some dude over here in a, in a cubicle typing whatever it is, right? I can't talk to this person. I, I don't even, I don't even know. What's a, dude, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, all right? Remember, and I like to say, you know, they put their pants on like everybody else does, right? But think about it. We are all people made in the image of God. And that image, all of us, that image has been corrupted by sin, disobedience, I call it rebellion against God's laws, right? We should see ourselves as the Samaritan woman. We should see ourselves as Nicodemus, okay? We are the ones, all of us, trailer park, cross the street, in the room, we're at state capitol, wherever, right? We are all in need of the gospel. And listen to this, listen to this. After all, right, think about it. Christianity is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Okay, Christianity is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. We are the beggars. Jesus, what's he say? I am the bread of life. And I will give you living water. When we're hungry and thirsty, that's who we go to. Okay? So now let's get to the heart of the matter here real quick. Living water. Living water. What in the world does this mean? When the Jews spoke of living water, it meant not stagnant, flowing. It was from a well. It was from a stream. It was not some puddle. Stagnant, algae growing on top, right? It was drinkable. It was used for cleaning. It was used for ceremonial cleaning. Right? It, was the, it was the living water that took away the uncleanliness and cleaned you so that you would become acceptable. And notice Jesus also using, uses this term gift of God as himself in the sentence as well. So, you know, he's referring to something more than just plain water that's in a well or that's in a stream that's flowing, okay? I mean, this living water that he provides will not only ritually, ceremonially make you clean, but in actuality will make you clean, okay? So let's look quickly. I'm just going to go over five aspects of living water that Jesus provides very quickly. Number one, what's he say? It's a gift of God. If you knew the gift of God in verse 10, I think this means two things and they both relate to each other. One is Jews typically refer to the Old Testament as the gift of God. Right? Another is 
the gift of the gospel, that Jesus came to save people from their sins. Put those two together, right? Jesus is saying that if you knew your scriptures, miss, woman at the well, you would recognize who it is that is speaking to you and that he can offer you a new life, this big, free, bountiful gift of God that will transform your life spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. Bam. It's the gift of God. Number two, it's not just water, it's living water. Again, verse 10, he would have given you living water, water that's pure, that'll clean you from all of your filth and unrighteousness and sin, make you holy and pure, right? Living water has a lot of Old Testament references. God declares here, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I mean, think about this. This, this applies today. That was in Jeremiah chapter 2. We have forsaken God's living water, and instead of focusing on God, what do we do? We build our own water wells, right? We forsake God, we focus on ourselves. What's the biggest God of the world today? The God of the capital S self. You guys have heard me say this over and over again, right? We think, ah, we don't need God. Isn't this what Adam and Eve, oh, we don't need God. We got ourselves. My friends, yourself, I mean, it's not going to work, okay? So number three, it's eternally thirst quenching. If you drink it, you'll never thirst again. That is, it's always there to satisfy you when your longing soul is thirsty. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, says verse 14. Right? You drink the water in the well. I mean, this, this poor woman probably has to go out there constantly. Get water, bring it back. Thirsty again, got to go back out to the water. Think about this. How many things in our life do we substitute for living water that we think are going to fully satisfy us? Okay? I've been there. Man, if I just get this promotion, I'll be happy. If I just get this raise, I'm going to be happy. If I just get this trophy wife, I'm going to be happy. If I just get this boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm going to be happy. Oh, you know what? I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. If I could just become a woman, I would be happy. Okay? How many times do we want money or power? or prestige, or, you know, whatever it is. But my friends, we're never going to be satisfied with that. Why? Because it just, it'll satisfy us for a moment. For just a moment. And then we're going to want more. Oh, that promotion was great. I got that money, but dang, now I've just spent it all. So now I need another promotion and another raise. Right? Just constant. It's a never-ending cycle. You're just going to go on and on and on until you are consumed and enslaved by the power and the change of stuff. But living water from Christ is no tame or stagnant thing, right? It is not only the entrance into a new life with new birth, but it's abundant life. John 10.10, 10, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. Okay? 
And then the Spirit, the living Spirit, the Holy Spirit within us is evidence of this. Okay, my friends, it is a thirst for God. I've got to challenge you just for a second. Do you have a thirst for God? Do you have a, just a longing to be in His presence, in prayer, in His Word? Do you want to know God more? Or are you like, Psh, I said that prayer a long time ago, man, I'm good. I'm good. Friends, life has a way of begetting life, right? Life. Life begets life. That brings us to our next point. Finally, it's, it's an eternal springing up. The water becomes a spring, a well of water that springs up, that springs up. This is why you never go thirsty again, because one drink is not enough, right? Because the true drink produces a well that springs up constantly. It overflows out of you onto others, okay? The word here actually means leaping up. It's like a guy jumping up and down, leaping up. It springs up. This is why, I think, if y'all been here any time, that's why, you know, I always like to say that my desire for Summit Community Church is to become a well of living water springing up to eternal life and overflowing over all of our community. It's not just here. We want to share. We want more people to be part of the family. We want to, remember, what's our, what's our mission statement? To glorify God, to make disciples, and to bless our community. This is how we bless our community. This is how we make disciples. This is how we glorify God. We have this well that springs up in us. Okay, finally, the water gives eternal life. Look at verse 14, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And there's a couple of Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in Jesus pouring out the Spirit as this living water. Isaiah 12, verse 3 says, With joy God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Again, Isaiah 49 they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. So let me close with this. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The bread of life and the one that provides living water. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Let's pray.